Father in heaven, we come before your throne this evening to thank you for this beautiful day that you have given us. What a privilege it is to gather as your people, to fellowship together, to uh, tell what you have done in our lives to one another. It's such a strengthening experience. And uh, Lord, we thank you because we're able to learn many things at camp meeting as well and praise you through song. We ask this evening that your Holy Spirit will be with us through the ministry of the angels, that uh, you will uh, give us clear minds, that you will give us tender and open hearts to receive your word. Encourage us, Lord. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, and I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. In this chapter, of course, Jesus is speaking of the signs of his coming. And one of those signs is that there is going to be a tribulation in this world such as has never been seen in history. And that's what we find described in these two verses. I read, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. A tribulation such as has never been seen, nor will be seen. The worst in the history of the world. Now when some Seventh-day Adventists read about the Great Tribulation, they are filled with fear. In fact, I have visited places where I've heard Seventh-day Adventists say, I hope the Lord lays me to rest before that terrible time of trouble. Also, those who speak about the time of trouble many times are accused of being fearmongers, of being alarmists and extremists. But this evening we're going to notice that there is no reason for us to be afraid of the coming time of trouble such as has never been seen in the history of the world because God's people have a guardian angel and the name of that guardian angel is Michael. Now let's say a few things about the name Michael. Michael is Israel's great defender. The specific name appears only five times in the Bible. It appears three times in the Old Testament and it appears twice in the New Testament. Four of the five references have already taken place. They describe events that took place in history. Only one of those references to Michael is still an event that is going to transpire in the future. And that's the one that I want to specifically focus on this evening, the one future reference. But in order to understand the future reference, we need to understand the name Michael as it has been fulfilled throughout the course of history. Now I must mention that even though the name Michael appears only five times in Scripture, the person of Michael appears in other passages of Scripture, but the specific name Michael is not used. For example, Michael is also called the Prince of the Host. He's called the Angel of the Lord. He's called the Prince of Princes, the Angel of His Presence, and that great Prince. Now in those passages, he's not referred to specifically with the name Michael, but we know by the characteristics of these passages that Michael is being referred to. Now we need to examine the etymology of the word Michael, of the name Michael, the composition. Actually, the name Michael is composed of three Hebrew words. Mi, Ka, El. And basically it means who like God. And of course we add the, the helping verb is. Who is like God. 
In other words, this name is a challenge. It's not a mere name. It's a challenge. Who is like God? And I would add something. Who is like God? And who is able to make war with him? Because as we find the name Michael and the other passages which don't mention the specific name, we find three common denominators. Number one, Michael always appears in the context of a war or a battle with Satan. Secondly, Michael always wins the battle. And in the third place, when Michael wins, his people win with him. And so we have these three common denominators, not only in the five passages that use the name Michael, but also in the passages where clearly Michael is being spoken of, even though the specific name is not used. So what I want us to do is to examine, first of all, the first four references that were fulfilled in the past. Then we're going to take a look at some passages where Michael is referred to, but not by the specific name. And then at the end of our study, we are going to take a look at the one reference that has to do with future events. The first reference to Michael is found in Daniel chapter 10. This chapter is rarely studied in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And it is a crucially important chapter in order to comprehend the next chapter, chapter 11. Now in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13, we find some, a very significant reference to Michael. But in order to understand that reference to Michael, we need to understand the historical context. What is taking place that led to the writing of this verse? I'm going to give you a little bit of historical background. From the year 605 to 536 BC, as we know, Israel was captive, more specifically Judah was captive in Babylon. Jeremiah had prophesied that they were going to be captive for a period of 70 years. Shortly before the 70 years came to an end, in the year 539 BC, Babylon received a deadly wound. In other words, Babylon fell. And God's people, of course, were delivered from Babylon. In the year 536, exactly 70 years after Daniel and his friends had been taken captive to Babylon, which is described in Daniel chapter 1, we find that Cyrus, uh, who was king of Persia, gave the decree releasing God's people to go back to their land to rebuild the temple. And so basically you have 605 to 536, the period of the captivity, 539 B.C. Balwin Falls, and then 536 B.C. Cyrus gives his decree authorizing the Jews to go back to their land to rebuild the temple. Now Daniel chapter 10 is describing events that take place in the year 535 B.C. This is a year, perhaps a year plus, after Cyrus has given his decree. Now it just so happens that when the Jews returned to their land to rebuild the temple, they met all kinds of opposition. At first the Samaritans feigned an interest in the project of the rebuilding of the temple. But then when Ezra rebuffed them, they became very tough opposers of the project of rebuilding the temple. For a while, the Samaritans were able to influence the minds of the kings of Persia to halt the building project. In fact, during the period of Cambyses, who comes after Cyrus, the, the decree that had been given by Cyrus was actually suspended for a period because the Samaritans influenced the kings of Persia to revoke the decree that had been given by Cyrus. Well, it just so happens that finally the Samaritans wrote a letter to King Darius. It's not Darius the Mede, it's Darius the Persian. And they said, could you search in the annals of Medo-Persia to find out if there ever was a decree giving these rebels the right to rebuild their temple? 
And so King Darius went and he checked in the annals of Medo-Persia and he discovered the decree that had been given by Cyrus. And so in the year 520 BC, uh, Darius gave a new decree reinforcing the decree that had been given by Cyrus, authorizing the Jews to build the temple. And in five years, Israel had rebuilt the temple, which they finished in the year 515. So in other words, during this time there was great turmoil. From the time that they returned to the land to rebuild the temple, there was severe opposition to the project. With this in mind, now we can understand the first reference to Michael in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 13. You see, there was something that was happening behind the scenes. You see, what was happening in the visible world, the opposition by the Samaritans, was only a visible manifestation of something that was happening in the invisible world. There was a battle going on. It says there in Daniel 10 verse 13, and Gabriel is speaking here, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, who is identified in the spirit of prophecy as Satan, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me, that is Gabriel, 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And so we find this battle, Gabriel and Michael struggling with the minds of the kings of Persia, whereas the prince of Persia, Satan, is struggling to influence the minds of the kings of Persia so that they will not favor the Jews. The question is, who won the battle? Michael and Gabriel, because the decrees were given and the temple was finished. The second reference to Michael is found also in chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 21. Here we find the, the fact that the battle did not end with the Persian kings. You see, the battle was going to continue because other decrees needed to be given. There needed to be a decree by King Artaxerxes. There needed to be a decree in the days of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And so this battle was going to continue. And that's what we find in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 21. Then he, that is Gabriel, said to Daniel, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. See, he's saying the battle uh, that began in the year 535, now I have to go back and I have to continue struggling with the minds of the kings of Persia. And then he says, And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Question, were all of the decrees given in time? Absolutely. Was the temple rebuilt? It was. Was the decree of Artaxerxes given for the Jews to reestablish their religious and political order? Yes. Was the decree given to rebuild the walls? Absolutely. So who won this battle for the minds of the kings of Persia? Michael, along with Gabriel, won this battle because the decrees were given right on time. So you have a struggle. Michael wins in the struggle, and the people of Michael win along with him. Now the third reference to Michael in Scripture is found in the New Testament, in Jude 9. And I guess we could say Jude 1 verse 9, but Jude only has one chapter, so we only mention the verse. Jude 9 is very interesting. Let me give you a little bit of historical background. We should always study the historical background of texts before we actually study the texts. There's something going on here. It just so happens that when you read the story of the death of Moses, there are two unusual details about his death in Deuteronomy 34. Number one, we are told that God buried Moses. You can read it there in Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6. He's the only person in the Bible that I know of where God buried him. And the second interesting detail is that nobody knew where his tomb was, which is unusual among the Jews because they marked the tombs of their heroes. You know, Abraham was buried in the cave of Machpelah. You know, you can uh, still visit the, what is 
believed to be the tomb of David in Jerusalem. The Jews marked the tombs of their heroes. But when it comes to Moses, there's no reference whatsoever to where Moses was buried. And then, lo and behold, about 1,500 years later, ballpark, you find Moses coming down to talk to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So the only conclusion we can reach is that at some point, Moses must have been what? He must have been resurrected. And he must have gone, come from heaven because it, it says that they came down from glory. Now, the book of Jude describes a battle that took place when Michael came to resurrect Moses. I read that verse. Yet Michael, the archangel, now we discover that Michael is the what? The archangel, don't forget that. We had Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil. See, there you have a battle again. When he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What was Michael struggling with Satan over? The body of Moses. Do you think that Michael fights for dead corpses? Of course not. What had Michael come to do? He had come to resurrect Moses, and Ellen White describes that Satan was there contesting the right of Michael to resurrect Moses. He said, Moses sinned. Moses is mine. You can't take him. And of course, uh, Michael, who is Jesus, by the way, he says to Satan, yes, but Moses repented, and he accepted me as his Savior. He accepted my shed blood. And the devil says, yeah, but you haven't shed your blood yet. You can't legally take him. And Jesus says, yeah, but, but I'm going to shed my blood. You can take it to the bank. And so I'm going to take him with me. Now let me ask you, who won this battle? Michael. Who won with him? Moses, his child. You see, in the battle, Michael always wins. And when Michael wins, his people win as well. The fourth reference to Michael is found in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. That is the, the fourth specific reference to his name. Revelation 12, and we're going to notice verses 7 through 12. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels. So now we gather the idea that Michael is the commander of what? Of the angelic hosts. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. See, here you have conflict again. Fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. That is the devil and his angels. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, I'm going to say something that might be surprising to some, but this passage in context is not really referring primarily to the original casting out of Satan from heaven. Ellen White does use it that way. It does, it does strongly hint that there was an original casting out. But this passage has to do primarily with the casting out of Satan at the cross of Calvary. I want you to go with me to John chapter 12, and we'll read verses 31 to 33. You see, Satan was cast out at the cross as the representative of this world. Before that, as you know from the book of Job, Satan could go to the heavenly council representing planet earth. But when Jesus conquered the devil, when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, Satan was cast out of heaven as the representative. Now Jesus represents this world, the second Adam, because he recovered what the first Adam lost. Now notice what we find in John chapter 12, verse 31 to 33. Jesus, this is shortly before the death of Jesus. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Will be cast out. And what was Jesus referring to when he said the ruler of this world is going to be cast out? Verse 32, and, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. 
This he said, signifying by what death he would die. What is it that cast out seven, Satan as the representative of this world? It was the death of Jesus on the cross. When he said, it is finished, he won. The devil no longer represented planet Earth. And Ellen White adds that when, when the heavenly hosts saw the way that Satan treated Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross, every little itsy bit of sympathy they might have had with Satan was totally destroyed. He was cast out in the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Now, I want you to notice how this passage continues because it becomes very clear that this is talking about the casting out at the cross. Let's continue reading at verse 10. It's just said that he was cast out, and it says in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, this is after he's cast out, right? Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Let me ask you, when Satan was cast down originally from heaven, were there any brethren to accuse? No. Because this planet had not been, this planet had not been populated yet. Are you with me or not? So this must be referring to an event that took place after that. And then notice the next verse. It says in verse 12, uh, actually verse 11, and they, that is the brethren, when the Bible uses the word brethren, it's talking about those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are his brethren. And so it says, and they overcame him by what? Ah, so the blood of the Lamb has been uh, shed at this point. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. I'm sure you've read Luke chapter 10 and verse 18, where Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Do you know Ellen White uses that text to refer to the original casting out? But she uses it primarily to describe the casting out of Satan at the cross. Let me just read you one statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is Youth's Instructor, June 21, 1900. This is speaking about the moment that Jesus died on the cross. God bowed his head, satisfied. That is when Jesus is sacrificed. Now justice and mercy could blend. Now he could be just and yet the justifier of all who should believe on Christ. God looked upon the victim expiring on the cross and said, It is finished. The human race shall have another trial. The redemption was paid and Satan fell like lightning from heaven. So Revelation 12 is talking about, yes, there was an original battle. Who won that original battle? Michael, right? Did the angels win with him? Of course. But it also refers to the casting out of the cross. Who won on the cross? It looked like the devil won, but Jesus won. Who won with Jesus? Everyone who receives Jesus as Savior wins with him. So once again, a battle. Michael wins, and with him, his people win as well. So those are the first four references to Michael. They describe events in the past. Now let's examine some passages that refer to Michael where the specific name Michael is not used. Go with me to Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Of course, I've got to give you a little bit of historical background. Israel has just entered the promised land. The first city they come to is the city of Jericho. And God has told Israel that that's the first city that they need to fight against. And so Joshua is on the outskirts of Jericho before the city is conquered, and this majestic being shows up and stands before him. And I want to read, beginning with verse 13, this encounter between Joshua. By the way, Joshua was the visible commander of the armies of Israel, but there was an invisible commander. It says there in verse 13, And it came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man 
stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. This is a warrior, in other words. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord. Who is the army of the Lord? Who is the army of the Lord? The angels. That's right. Now, who is the commander of the army? We just read in Revelation 12, Michael and his angels. And so it says here, uh, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, who was this individual who was referred to as a man? By the way, sometimes angels are referred to as men. For example, Daniel says, that man Gabriel appeared to me. So sometimes angels uh, don't, don't get hung up over the fact that, uh, that an angel is called man because that happens many times in Scripture. Now, who was this individual that met Joshua? We don't have to guess. Notice what we find at the end of verse 14. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Who was this person? It was Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Michael, the commander of the Lord's hosts. By the way, who won the battle of Jericho? Was it Joshua and the armies of Israel? No. What did they do? They marched around the city. Let me read you how it happened. Ellen White has a statement. Review and Herald, September 16, 1873. You know, it wasn't an earthquake that knocked down the walls. Ellen White explains, angels of God laid hold of the massive walls and brought them to the ground. <laughs> so was there a battle going on here? Oh yeah. Who won? Ah, Michael. Who won with him? Israel. Because they defeated Jericho. Let's notice our next example where Michael is clearly referred to but by not using this specific name. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 and verses 2 through 6. This is the experience of the burning bush. It says there in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord, this is the same person, by the way. He's called by different names, but we know that the angel of the Lord is Michael. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will not now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And now notice this is very interesting. When the word Lord, every letter is capitalized, that's, that's the name Yahweh. Mispronounced Jehovah. Okay? So notice what it says. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him from the midst of the bush. Who was in the bush when we started reading this passage? The angel of the Lord. But now we notice that the angel of the Lord is the Lord and God. So it says, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Was this the same person that Joshua met on the outskirts of Jericho? Absolutely. Was he God? Yes. Verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God. This is the same angel of the Lord that is speaking. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, the next uh, before we go to the next passage, I want you to notice why this angel of the Lord came down. Let's read verse 7. And the Lord said, see this is the angel of the Lord, the Lord God used interchangeably. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. 
and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down, and now I want you to remember this word. This is a key word that we're going to uh, find many times from this point on. So I have come down to what? To deliver. So this angel is the deliverer. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. So what did the angel of the Lord come down to do? To deliver Israel. By the way, do you know that uh, Pharaoh is called the great dragon in Ezekiel 29 verse 3? So this is a battle between Michael and the great dragon. Who won? Michael. Who won with him? Israel. Because they were delivered from bondage. Let's go to our next example. The time of trouble is called the time of whose trouble? Of Jacob's trouble. So do you think it might be a good idea for us to study the story of Jacob? Of course. And so we go to Genesis chapter 32, where you have the story of Jacob. You know the story. Jacob lied to his father. He stole his brother's birthright. For that reason, he had to leave home. He was exiled for 20 years. After 20 years, God told Jacob, you need to go back to the land. So Jacob is traveling back. And as he's traveling, he hears that his brother Esau is coming with 400 armed men to destroy him and his family. And so Jacob now goes by the brook Jabbok and he pours out his heart in prayer to God to deliver him from the wrath of his brother because his brother said, I will find Jacob and I will kill him. He had said right after his brother stole his birthright. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 32, verses 9 through 11. Then Jacob said, here Jacob is pray, praying to the Lord in this time of trouble where his brother is coming to destroy him. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. And what's the next word at the beginning of verse 11? Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. And so he's pouring out his prayer. You see, Jacob had not been able to forgive himself. And he wasn't even certain that God had forgiven him. Even though God showed him the, the dream of the ladder. And God said, I'll be with you wherever you go. I will bless you. 20 years earlier, God had said that to him. But you see, God forgave him, but he wasn't able to forgive himself. So he wanted the certainty of forgiveness so that God could keep his covenant and protect him from the wrath of his brother. And so as he's praying, a certain individual comes and begins struggling with Jacob. At first, Jacob feels that he's the enemy. Soon he discovers that he's really struggling with a supernatural being, especially when uh, his hip is touched and it becomes disjointed. He says, this, is, this has to be more than a human uh, opponent. And so now he realizes that he's struggling with a supernatural being. And the supernatural being, the sun is coming up, and he says, Jacob, let me go, because the sun is coming up. And Jacob latches onto him, and he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And once again, this, this being says, let me go. Jacob says, no way, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And so then, this being says to Jacob, what's your name? Jacob said, my name is Supplanter. Someone who tries to take somebody else's place. My name is Jacob. And this being says, your name will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be now called Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men. And you have prevailed. The question is, who was this individual that Jacob struggled with? It says once again, it was a man. When we go to the book of Hosea, we discover who it was. Notice Hosea chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. See, we need to let, allow, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
as long as the texts are dealing with the same subject matter. Hosea 12 verse 4 and 5 tells us that this being was an angel. It says there in Hosea 12 4 and, 4, 4 and 5, yes, he struggled with the what? With the angel and prevailed. What's the name of that angel? Michael. He struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. Now how do we know that that angel was God? Because Jacob gave that place a special name. He called that place Peniel. Pen means face. El, God. He called it face of God. And then he explained why he called it face of God. In Genesis 32 verse 10, it says, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Who was the angel? The angel was God. Michael, the archangel. By the way, did Esau fight against Jacob and his family? Or was he delivered? He was delivered. So who won this battle? Michael. Who won with him? Jacob. Exactly. And his family. Now let's notice a couple of other references. Daniel 3. Daniel 3. Remember the key word is deliver, right? Remember the angel of the Lord said, I've come down to deliver Israel. We notice in the case of Jacob, Jacob says, deliver me. Remember that word deliver, very important word. You know the story in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar raises an image. He commands everybody to worship the image. There are three young men that say we won't because we are faithful to the true God, to the creator God. We will not worship. So let's pick up the story in Daniel 3 and verse 15. The king calls the three young men and he says to them, Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will? Oh, you're weak tonight. Who is the God who will what? deliver you from my hands. What God is going to deliver you from my hands? The three young men have, a, have an answer, an immediate answer. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't even have to think about this. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver. To deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand O king but they're not presumptuous they say but if not let it be known to you O king that we do not serve your gods nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up and of course Nebuchadnezzar is filled with rage I like Ellen White describes what he looked like he was demon possessed she said, this is found in Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 4, page 1169. She states, Satanic attributes made his countenance appear as the countenance of a demon. And she says that he, he said, what God will be able to deliver you from my hand? He raised his hand in defiance to heaven, is what Ellen White says. Now he throws the three young men into the furnace. And of course, you know the story. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace and he sees not three, but four. Who was the fourth one? Well, let's go to Daniel 3, 24 and 25 to see who the fourth person was. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. And so, you know, many versions translate the Son of the Gods. 
because Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. But notice the explanation that Ellen White gives in Christ Triumphant, in chapter 6 of Christ Triumphant, she states, the Hebrew captives had told Nebuchadnezzar of Christ, the Redeemer that was to come. And from the description thus given, the king recognized the form of the fourth in the fiery furnace as the Son of God. So who came to deliver the three young men? The Son of God. But now notice a very interesting detail. Daniel 3 and verse 28. Don't miss this point. Nebuchadnezzar just said the fourth is like what? The Son of God. He has the form of the Son of God. But notice who the Son of God was. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his... Excuse me? Was it the Son of God or was it the angel? The Son of God was the angel. Michael. Sent his angel. For what? And delivered his servants who what? Ah, here's the key. Who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And then, of course, the king gives a decree after this. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty nasty fellow. He was a despot. You think Donald Trump is bad. <laughs> you know, we need to pray for Donald Trump. Is he, a, is he a candidate for the kingdom? Of course. How do you think Daniel treated Nebuchadnezzar? Think he got involved in politics and, you know, said, oh, that nasty guy? No. Daniel wanted to see Nebuchadnezzar saved. That's the way we should look at people. So the king gives a decree. Daniel 3 verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. And their houses shall, made, shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Somehow I think that deliver is a key theme in Daniel 3. The next example I want to give is found in Daniel 6. Once again, the word de deliver is a key word in the chapter. You know the story. Uh, Daniel was an exemplary citizen. He, he was very active and faithful in the service of the king. But uh, the individuals who were there in other political positions did not like Daniel, probably because he was faithful to his God. So they were looking for a way to get rid of Daniel, but Daniel was an exemplary servant of the king. So they said, listen, we're not going to be able to get anything against Daniel by the work that he does for the king. Let's pick up the story in verse 5 of chapter 6 of Daniel. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the what? Is the issue in Daniel 3 worship? Yes. It's also the law because the law says you shall not bow down before any graven image. So the issue in Daniel 3 is the law and worship. Is the issue in Daniel chapter 6 the law and worship? It most certainly is. That's the issue. So they say we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And so to make a long story short, in verses 6 through 9, these men go before the king and they say, Oh, king, we love you so much. I'm paraphrasing. You know, we love you so much that we want you to give a decree that for 30 days no one can ask any petition of a god or a man for 30, just you. And the king says, oh, these guys really love me. By the way, there's this interesting phenomenon in my latest newsletter, which was already put online. I'm not sure if the hard copy has gotten in the mailboxes yet. But I show that there's this interesting phenomenon in Scripture, and that is when religious advisors deceive the king, Eventually, the king, instead of destroying the enemies of the advisor, they end up destroying the advisor in the days of Esther. Right? Daniel and the lions. And who, who did the lions eat? 
the ones that prepared the plot. And by the way, this is picked up in Revelation 17, where the harlot is fornicating with the kings of the earth. The church is united with the state, and they're having this jolly good time. But it says that the kings will end up hating the harlot. Instead of destroying God's people, they will hate, hate the harlot, who joined with the kings to try and get the kings to destroy God's people. This is a, a theme that appears time and again in Scripture. And, and you know, uh, like the Jews, you know, they appealed to the civil power to Pilate to destroy Jesus because they wanted to save their nation from the Romans. And what happened is the Romans came and destroyed the nation. Anyway, that's a different subject for a different time. So anyway, anyway, Daniel hears about the decree and Daniel goes to his room and he says, no reason to ruffle any feathers. Let's just close the windows. Is that what Daniel does? No! In verse 10 it says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees. See, it has to do with worship. He knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. And now the king discovers that these guys didn't really love him. They hated Daniel. And so the king now is going to do everything in his power to deliver Daniel. Notice the key word. We're going to see it several times. Let's pick up the story in verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, O oh, Know, O king, that it is the law of Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you occasionally serve. Thank you very much. It's good. I'm glad you're still awake. Your God, whom you continually serve, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lord, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went away from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel, the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now listen carefully to this. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. Who was that angel? The same angel of Daniel 3. Michael. Who won? Daniel. Who won in the story of Daniel 3? The three young men. Because they served God continually. So he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they may not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have not done any wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and now notice, and no injury whatever was found on him because he what? Because he believed in his God. By the way, Hebrews 11 mentions the two stories of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. It says, by faith, they shut the mouths of lions. By faith, they quenched raging fires. These were people of faith who served the Lord continually. And so the king now has to give a decree as well. It's found in verses 25 to 27. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, 
peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble in fear before God, the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So what is Michael? The great deliverer. Now, we need to go to the last reference to Michael. It's found in Daniel 12, verse 1. Let me give you a little bit of historical context. The Bible refers to the last power that will rule in this world before the second coming of Jesus by different names. The papacy is referred to as the man of sin, as the Antichrist, as the abomination of desolation, as the little horn, the harlot, many different names. In Daniel chapter 11, this power is referred to as the king of the north. The king of the north. It's the last power. In all of these passages, the last power is the papacy. And if you read the end of chapter 11, you'll find in verse 44 that news from the north and from the east will trouble the king of the north. By the way, the news from the north and from the east is, the, from the north is the loud cry, and the east, the angel that rises with the seal of the living God from the east. What enrages the king of the north is the loud cry and the sealing message. They don't have time to go into all of the details on that. I wrote a long article titled Reflections on Daniel 11 where I deal extensively with the king of the south and the king of the north. But anyway, the scenario is that the king of the north, the papacy, is going to go out and his purpose is to exterminate and annihilate many. And I want you to notice something very interesting. What does the name Michael mean? The name Michael means... Who is like God? What are the inhabitants of the earth going to be saying at this time when the king of the north goes out, when the papacy goes out, allied with the kings of the world, with apostate Protestantism, what are the people of the world who follow the beast going to be saying? Revelation 13, verses 3 and 4. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. This was in 1798, we all know this. And his deadly wound was healed. This is the description at the end of chapter 11 of Daniel, when he goes out to annihilate and destroy many. It says his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and now notice, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Jesus is going to say, I am. Who is like God? Are you seeing the, the relationship between these two? When the world is saying, who is like the beast? Jesus, Michael will rise up. His name is, who is like what? Who is like God? Who does it pay to be allied with? Michael. Let's read Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, that is when the king of the north goes out to attempt to destroy God's people, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And what's going to happen? There's going to be what? Oh yeah, God's people are going to go through the time of trouble. It says, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and now notice what happens. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Let me ask you, when were their names retained in the book? In the investigative judgment. You have a clear allusion here to the investigative judgment. So the last reference to Michael is a future reference. It's about Michael rising when everyone is saying, who is like the beast? Jesus is going to rise. He says, who is like God? Michael will stand up. 
He's the, he's the guardian angel of God's people. God's people will be, go through the time of trouble, but in the midst of the time of trouble, they will be delivered by Michael, like Michael has been the deliverer all throughout human history. And then you know what's interesting? The very next verse after Daniel 12 verse 1 speaks about, because Michael is still the person, the subject, it speaks about Michael resurrecting those who sleep in the dust of the earth. He's the resurrection angel. It says in verse 2 and 3, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Then notice who wins. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You remember that verse in Psalm 34, verse 7? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Who is the him there? Who fear whom? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and what? Delivers them. Who is that angel of the Lord that encamps around his people? Jesus. One final reference to Michael, even though the name is not used. This passage is used at every funeral that I have ever attended. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. Michael is the great angel of the resurrection. The great deliverer, not only deliverer from death among those who are living, but deliverer from the grave. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself, who is the Lord himself? Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an what? Of an archangel. Which archangel? Michael, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Should we be afraid of going through the time of trouble? Not if we continually serve, Michael. Not if we have faith. Not if we trust in him. We have no reason to fear. You know, Psalm 91 is the tribulation psalm. I'm sure you're aware of this. Let me just end by reading Psalm 91, 14 through 16. It says, because he has set his love upon me, here, Jesus is speaking. The Lord is speaking. Because the person has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. That's his character. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. No reason to fear the time of trouble. Don't ask the Lord to lay you to rest before that time. What a privilege it will be to vindicate the character of God before the universe by remaining faithful, an entire generation remaining faithful in the face of death, saying we will be loyal to Jesus even if it means dying, because we know that he has the power to resurrect. I trust that as we've studied this evening, that we will have that kind of trust, continual trust in Jesus in our daily walk with him. Is that the desire of your heart? To have that daily walk you want to raise? You want to stand? Praise the Lord. Praise God. Now let's not go home and forget everything that we've studied.
Let's make this uh, something constant in our minds. Daily, continually serve like the Bible says. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the comfort of the scriptures. We know that you say that the scriptures comfort us so that we might have hope. We know that there are very difficult times ahead. Troublous times. A time of trouble such as never has been seen. Lord, help us not to focus on the trouble. Help us to focus on the deliverer from trouble. We thank you, Lord, for being willing to send your precious son Jesus to this world to live for us and to die for us. We're thankful that he intercedes for us, that he's performing a work of judgment, and soon he will come again. Oh, how we long for that day. We're tired of living in this sin-sick, dreary, dark world. We want to go home. But help us, Lord, not to be selfish and want to go home by ourselves. Use us, Lord, to reach as many of your children in this world so that they can enjoy eternity as well. Help us to be witnesses to your great love and your great power. We thank you for hearing our prayer. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.